You listen to this podcast every day because it's your KC local reliable news source. You take us seriously. But you know, we like to get down and we want you to party with us. Join us at our annual benefit, Radioactive, on June 14th. NPR's All Things Considered host, Ari Shapiro, is the featured guest at this party, and it's gonna be bumping. You gotta be there. Sponsorship packages and ticket information are available at kcur.org slash radioactive. Up to date wants to know what you're talking about with family and friends. You can text UTD to 816-601-4777 to tell us. Again, 816-601-4777. And welcome back. This is Up to Date on KCUR 89.3. The Kansas City Chiefs have a long, notable history with talent from the HBCU, or an historically black college or university. The Hunt family was known for giving historically black college and university players a chance. Now as we fast forward to today, we'll be watching two black quarterbacks go at it in the Super Bowl for the first time ever. And many believe the Hunt family and the Chiefs helped pave the way for getting African-American players from HBCU used to play at the highest levels. With us now to talk about this important legacy of the Kansas City Chiefs are Harold Koontz, a sports anchor at Fox 4 and president of the Kansas City Association of Black Journalists. He wrote about this issue last year. Harold, nice to have you. Good morning. Good morning. Michael McCambridge is back. He's author of 69 Chiefs, A Team, A Season, and the Birth of the Modern Kansas City. Michael, good to have you back on the show as well. Good to be with you guys. Also with us is Hall of Famer and Super Bowl champ Willie Lanier, who played his college ball at Morgan State. That's an historically black college. Willie, it's good to have you back on the show again as well. Welcome. I'm doing fine. Good morning, man. How are you all doing? We're doing well, Willie. And again, thanks for your time. Harold, how surprised are you that it took you know this long for us to be seeing two black quarterbacks go at it in the Super Bowl? What I, what I can tell you is, He's shocked. So that should tell you how shocked we are, especially when it took 30 years after him to get one in Russell Wilson. And then, of course, Patrick Mahomes being the third. But when you think about the NFL and they didn't have a player since 1960, uh, African-American player since 1960, that just tells you how the NFL has evolved over its 100-year history. So now with a league about 70% black, it should come as no surprise. But it's taken us some time. But I feel like going forward into the future, you're going to see a lot more matches like this when you consider that 13 of the starting quarterbacks at the beginning of the year were African-American. Michael, what does this say about football in your view? I think it says that football is a meritocracy, and um, it's taken a while for football to become a pure meritocracy. I I think when we're talking about the effect of black players in pro football, specifically players from HBCUs, you need to recognize a couple things about the environment in the late 60s. There was a tremendous amount of sensitivity among coaches, among GMs, among owners about having too many black players. And it 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 was a racism that was disguised as a concern for whether fans would accept it. Hmm. Um, so there was there was always this tremendous self-consciousness. I remember hearing Bill Russell talk about the joke in the NBA was you could have two black starters at home, three blacks on the road, and four when you were behind. So I think to put Lamar Hunt and the Chiefs in proper context, it's worth understanding that 
Lamar was not a social progressive with a broad great society liberal agenda. What he simply was was a competitor who wanted to field the best team. And the means to fielding the best team was giving everyone an equal opportunity. And that's why a lot of players who historically had been ignored by other pro football teams were given an opportunity to mm. play for the Chiefs, Willie Lanier being um, one of the most shining examples of that. Willie, what do you recall about this resistance that Michael McCambridge just mentioned uh, back in the 1960s to uh, permitting many black players on any one football team? Well, the thing that happened was that the National Football League, with football being only in one conference until Lamar and his group showed up, uh, were restricted. The same way with American Baseball, National League, American League, and all of that. So I think, to Lamar's credit, he was had a nickname of of, uh, of, of sport or whatever that he just related games. to himself yeah. as a sport. And and because in the game, that's what it was. And because of that, I had been told that even at times he was growing up at black high school football games in Dallas, it might be a little white kid in the stands <laughs> who enjoyed sports, games, all right? So... And enjoying games and appreciating those who might be of color who also play games, it was one of having an openness and a fairness about himself and his family that allowed him to, as it were, not to be a progressive on everything, but it's just his games, and you want to have an opportunity to win. So when I was able to come to Kansas City, it was one that they had played the Super Bowl the previous year, and Cheryl Hedrick was a middle linebacker, but Cheryl had gotten somewhat older and he didn't have the size that was going to be needed uh, to play against a team like Green Bay or any of the big heavy running teams. So the quest was for the Chiefs to look at getting a middle linebacker. Well, the consensus All-American middle linebacker, Notre Dame, Jim Lynch, Maxwell Trophy, and all of that, was the 48th player drafted, and the 50th was Willie from small historic black college, Morgan State. Hmm. And to the credit, it was kind of interesting that Jim and I, who became roommates for eight years while we were there together, uh, Jim respected the fact that when he had gone to the All-Star game that year, uh, I was able to be in training camp, and when he got to training camp a week later, his credit, he felt that the guy who was going to be in the middle was not him because I had a bigger physical presence, mm-hmm. and he was comfortable with that. Huh. So it was just interesting how two young men, one centrist Democrat, me, he centrist Republican, Notre Dame, and all of that Maxwell Trophy, <laughs> were able to come together and be a part of change. Hmm. So that change then also had Buck Buchanan a couple of years before being the first overall Selectee is number one in a in a draft, and he came from Grambling, and Emmett Thomas had come from Bishop, and and with that you just had a combination of a number of guys. But by the time that Super Bowl rolled around in 1970, we had eight players who were African American and five from historic black colleges. Ah, interesting. And it was something that we raised a level of play that was uncommon in the way the game was played right? because you had been who was somewhat quicker, a little bit faster, a little bit more thoughtful, and had been playing games against others at a highly competitive level 
that in its own way was more right. than what the players currently playing, and many of them white who had not played against young men from black neighborhoods. Right. Harold, uh, let, let, Harold, let me get you back in here. How much credit do you give to uh, Lamar Hunt for the work he did in paving the way for HBCU athletes to uh, play in the NFL? Well, I'll actually uh, take a verse from Willie Lanier, the linebacker you were just talking to. Lamar Hunt was kind of a, a little bit of a visionary in the sense that the AFL was just looking for the best players to play when they were competing with the NFL uh, back in the 60s. And, and because of this, he had to find players that would play. So his scouts would go out there and try to find players from tiny places like Prairie View University and Bethune-Cookman and Tennessee A&I at the time and Morgan State, like where Willie went, and especially Grambling, Southern, you name it, he went there. And to his credit, they found great talent that became Hall of Famers, like Buck Buchanan, who went to Grambling, like Willie Lanier, who went to Morgan State, and even traded for someone, Ernie Ladd, who uh, they didn't draft, but they ended up picking up and acquiring uh, through trades. So there's plenty of guys that they looked out for and they said, well, hey, if it's going to lead me to a Super Bowl title, why not get HBCU talent? And it was so rich in talent as we've come to learn over the years, how many players that went to HBCUs that became Hall of Fame players. Um, it, it was it was no reason not to. I mean, they, they the stories of getting acquiring players and trying to pay them through back channel hotel rooms and making sure that they was getting them. I mean, it's great stories from scouts that they can uh, try to get these guys to go to, to play for the Kansas City Chiefs back then. So Lamar Hunt, even though he was a Texas guy in the oil business and really wanted to have no reason with maybe black people, he said, well, look, I own this team. I own this franchise. I'm still trying to win. Hmm. So as much as it was innovation, maybe it was just the fact that, you know, look, I'm going to do that same mentality. And that, actually that same mentality kind of permeates through the Chiefs franchise now if you look at Clark Hunt, he's the same type of guy, you know, Texas background and everything, but he will listen to his players and players want to see change. Like some of the players did when they brought the elections to Arrowhead stadium, he'll do it. Hmm. They just want to make sure that they listen to the players and make sure that they know that um, that's what they want to do. And that's kind of resounded through the Chiefs franchise throughout the years. You know, Michael McCambridge, how did Kansas city fans react to what Lamar Hunt was doing? How did that go over here? I, th I think that um, having spent any amount of time in Kansas City, you understand that um, Kansas Cityans uh, were sensitive about the city's reputation as a cow town. Um, you know, even Len Dawson has spoken about when he was traded, um, when, when he found out that the Dallas Texans were moving to Kansas City, Rather, um, he had friends who said, you know, I think cows are still walking in the streets of Kansas City. He'd, he'd never been there. He didn't he didn't know much about it. So I think obviously any city um, supports a winning team. But there was a special connection. Willie could speak to this um, probably more clearly. But there was there was a special connection between the city and this particular team. It was not just because the Chiefs were good. It was also because they were so in contrast to that meat and potatoes um, Midwestern reputation that Kansas City had. Right. The Chiefs were innovative offensively because of Hank Stram. They were trailblazers in terms of that 1969 Super Bowl champion team being the first team in pro football history in which a majority of the starters were African-American. But they had been they had been trailblazers for some time before then. Um, the guy who was going around to all the historically black colleges and universities 
was Lloyd Wells, who was the first black full-time right. scout in pro football. And the job that Willie Lanier won, won when he came to Kansas City made him the first African-American middle linebacker in pro football. And that was a big deal because the middle linebacker, especially then, was the quarterback of the defense. Mm-hmm. And there was those old those old biases that went against um, giving that much responsibility to a black man. And Willie Lanier simply earned it. You know, Willie, uh, to Michael's point and this special connection that he just mentioned, how well do you think you were received when you first came to town? How did that go over? Received in which way? The city, the team, what? The city. Well, I thought I didn't really. Well, the city was still the city, all right? And (laughs) uh, that being said, whatever the vestiges of segregation were still there, truth to the West was the dividing line between black and white. Uh, You could look at uh, getting past Swope Park was the other sort of dividing line, I guess, north and south. And I remember wanting to rent an apartment on the other side of Truth. And I remember the manager saying that they really wanted to rent me an apartment. But would I please understand that if they were to rent it to me, some of their existing tenants would move. So, therefore they wouldn't be able to, uh, of course, rent me the property. Mm -hmm. So you take a deep breath and you say, okay, this is America. And it wasn't America just in Kansas. It was America everywhere. Mm -hmm. So the same way that the football opportunities were benefited by uh, certain people at different facilities, and I know some of the banks in Kansas City, and I'm forgetting the person's name that I wish I could remember, because he was a big Chiefs fan. He was a white gentleman, president of one of the downtown banks, and very open to uh, making you feel comfortable, hmm. making you understand that you were going to be treated fairly and reasonably, and that they, as an institution, were not going to be like others who might not have the same, the same interests. Right. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Up to Date on KCUR. We're talking about how the Kansas City Chiefs have uh, had paved the way for more uh, black athletes from historically black colleges or universities back in the 1960s. Uh, Harold Kuntz, again, sports anchor at Fox 4. You had the opportunity in the piece that you did to talk to Bob Moore, the Chiefs historian. And he said, and I'm quoting here, this was really the only place where black players could have really had much of a chance and he was talking about the Chiefs, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It was one of the places that, as Bob Moore alluded to, yeah, it was only the place that they really had a chance because uh, nobody was else, else was was out there scouting. And mm-hmm. they, I think Michael just alluded to it with, with, uh, with some of the scouts that the Chiefs had. I mean, they had guys that were, you know, the scout that they had, he was good friends with Muhammad Ali. Huh. And he, he was there. Like, you know, he, he knew the, the struggle that people were going through. And he knew that he kind of had a little pulse on what was going on with the civil rights era of that of that generation. So when when it all comes down to it, yeah, if you have scouts that are looking for players of that talent and that caliber, then, yeah, you're going to be the only one that does that. I think that was one of the most sly and brilliant moves of, of the Hunt family was to make sure that they, they they acquired that talent going forward. But, yeah, Bob Moore is is, is a historian in the sense that 
he re he recognized that this would have never happened uh, as a community in Kansas City if they didn't have the leadership of players like Buck Buchanan. You think of Buck Buchanan, he you know is one of the guys that kind of had civil unrest problems when civil unrest problems were in Kansas City. He made sure those stopped. Um, mm -hmm. He was one of the big part of that. Of the him and players, uh, other players that ever did that. I mean. You, you had to be a black player in Kansas City Chiefs to make sure that it didn't have that, you know, quote unquote, Cowtown mentality that was there. Right. And they stopped that. You know, we all know that winning uh, a franchise that wins brings people together in a community. And that's what they did early on in, in the Chiefs franchise. And it really established it in Kansas City because who knows where this franchise would have been if it wasn't for the shoulders of, of those guys going forward. That's interesting. Forward. And, and, and that's, the, that's the history that I have to write. We'll be right back. You know, Michael McCambridge, you know, any longtime Chiefs fan will know this team came here from Dallas. And I'm wondering, was the team recruiting black players when the Chiefs were still based in Dallas? Oh, yeah. In fact, uh, the draft in which Buck Buchanan was the first player overall taken um, was conducted while the franchise was still in Dallas. Um, and there's a story that um, I remember Bobby Bell telling me about the team's first training camp in 1963 in Liberty. And um, Bobby Bell and Ed Buddy and Buck Buchanan were coming down from Chicago for the All-Star game. Uh, they'd, they'd played in the All-Star game, so they were joining the team a little bit late. And they went to some restaurant diner in downtown Liberty, and they weren't going to be served. And I can remember Bobby Bell saying he was thinking to himself, are we going to have to have a sit in here? Mm. But the next day, um, and I, I never got the story, whether it was Hank Stram or Lamar Hunt, but the next day there was an agreement um, among the proprietors in downtown Liberty that they would serve African-American players um, going forward. And so, the, and there are instances of this uh, with the Cowboys in Dallas and certainly other Southern cities where the first steps in integration occurred because there was a sports team, in this case, a football team that had an integrated roster that was going to insist as sports um, so much encourages mm -hmm. that everybody have an equal opportunity, that everybody be treated equally and have the same chance. And so that was from those seeds, um, those changes began. And it, it uh, as Willie can attest, um, it's a long process. But it sounds like, Willie, uh, you guys are making the point that the team's success, they won a lot of games that certainly had an impact on the city's acceptance of black athletes in general. Well, I think that was true in terms of a community that's diverse and that community being diverse. And Kansas City had a solid business of African-Americans being in business, being a part of the growth of the city. And you go back 40, 50, 60 years, you just saw uh, growth in college and education and people being a part of. So, so with that, the expansion of uh, young men coming with the sports franchise, which was new to the city, and then the development that was going to go on, all was moving <laughs> together mm -hmm. to provide the kind of future uh, that we see now. One of the other things that I'll just say about the Hunt family and 
this has been my view over the years, that at times when people talk about uh, equal treatment, fairness, and all of that, what I would do is just watch people and how they behave. And what I meant by that, how do you work with people around you? Other people that you work with, other people that are your superiors, other people that maybe work in an organizational chart below you, the person who puts the gas in your car, the person who's behind the counter when you're getting food, the fan, or whatever. The thing that I noticed about the Hunt family since observing early on over time was that they treated everybody, in my view, fairly. Hmm. Everybody. Mm-hmm. And it was fascinating to me because this was a family from Texas that had a, somewhat of a right-wing view uh, politically at, at certain points in time. But Lamar and his family treated everybody equal. <laughs> yeah. And it yeah. seemed like such a novel thing to me, and I got a chuckle out of it because it was like, wow, this is really possible. Huh. And it was one that was, for me, that I couldn't have imagined taking my time to have participated in a sport that had its own issues with a family structure of ownership that would have been somewhat different. Right. I mean, my odds of having played is basically almost zero because uh, <laughs> just because of how stark some of those kind of realities can be for you when you're trying to uh, provide an equal avenue to some kind of success. So that's what college was giving you the next step to take going forward. That's interesting. Well, Michael, your book on the 69 Chiefs, uh, the subtitle, A Team, A Season, and the Birth of Modern Kansas City. How was uh, the success of that team in 69, the birth of modern Kansas City? Well, I think it communicated um, to the rest of the country that Kansas City was not the cow town that um, they expected. Um, at that time, you've got the the new airport is already in the works. Um, you've got a year later, Crown Center opening. Um, Kansas City was was a, a city that was striving to be more modern. And the proof of that innovation was there in the football team mm-hmm. and the way the football team was constructed and what that team meant to the city. And it's still, you know, the people ask a lot about what are the commonalities and the parallels? Well, I think it's still true today. Giants fans love the New York Giants. Rams fans love the Los Angeles Rams. But in a city the size of Kansas City, sports is just um, more important, yeah. more significant yeah. to the city's identity, and which is why it is such a glorious time to be living in Kansas City and such a glorious time to be a Chiefs fan wherever you are in the world. Well, Willie, just quickly, how are you feeling about the game on Sunday? Well, I think that Kansas City, in the way they lost last year's game, should have the same kind of feeling they had when they won their first Super Bowl. Right. And what I mean by that is that D4 lined up offside, and it puts a hole in your heart when you thought you had it, and then it sort of snatched away. Uh, we, as a team in 1968, had the same feeling. When we went out to Oakland for a playoff game, and at halftime they had us down 31 to six. Right, and and we knew that we weren't going anywhere, and we were so far behind. It was an insult to us and our defense to realize that's where we could be. 
Willie, I'm going to have to now. I'm going to have to move on down the road here, but I appreciate your time. That's okay. Hall of Famer Willie Lanier, Michael McCambridge, author of 69 Chiefs, A Team, A Season, and Birth of Modern Kansas City. He has a new book on the way. Harold Kuntz, sports anchor at Fox 4 and president of the Kansas City Association of Black Journalists. Gentlemen, thank you all very much. Much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you. Up to Date is produced by Zach Wilson, Reginald David, Elizabeth Ruiz, Zach Perez, and Hannah Cole. Our intern is Claudia Brancart. Our announcer and engineer is Paul Nakatura. Our theme music is composed and performed by the great Bobby Watson. I'm Steve Kraske. Thanks for listening. <laughs>